0: Hello and welcome to the Armin show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, expanding our framework, becoming more full as an individual. Subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, all the different places. And the clips are doing well across the various platforms. On this episode here, we have the author of this book right here, Selfless. The social creation of you, Dr. Brian Lowry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you on. You are the Walter Kenneth Kilpatrick Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Your research has been published in major scholarly journals and covered by media outlets such as The Washington Post, GQ, Psychology Today, Pacific Standard, Quartz, The Huffington Post, and NPR's All Things Considered. And you also have a podcast, Know What You See. That is wonderful. A variety of activity prolific in nature. Before we get into some of those what got you to where you are currently at Stanford? How would you describe that path? What are some key steps of that path?
1: Yeah, um, well,
0: I started off in
1: engineering and a key step in my path was having a job while I was in college and over the summer um, in an engineering organization and discovering that I did not wanna be an engineer. So that was a key step. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no engineering.
1: So, so one of the sometimes the key step is finding out what you don't want to do. Um, <clears throat> I always was interested in psychology and sociology, social science um, generally, and I decided to change my major to social psychology. Um, I ended up going to get a PhD at UCLA, and then from there it was straight to Stanford.
0: Now UCLA is not far from me. How was your experience there? And. Did it have a large impact? Was there anything specific about UCLA that spoke to you? Um
1: so at the at the time and I think still now, UCLA is a very good psychology program. Um and I, I wanted to, I had lived in the Midwest most of my life and I wanted to live somewhere else. I was I was curious about other parts of the country, and so I wanted to be on the West Coast. That was part of it. Um and in terms of my experience, I don't know if it was UCLA per se, but <clears throat> excuse me. Graduate school was transformative for me. So I I feel like I left a different person that came in. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. Um for me, graduate school was a process of the world becoming larger in in a in a literal sense. Yeah. It's just like um, you know, I think with your, your show, Armand, it's expanding what you see in the world allows the world to be a bigger place. I mean, if tomorrow I, I, I show you a new color that you've never seen. And then you see it everywhere. All of a sudden, the world has gotten bigger for you. It's a version of that. The world just became a bigger place for me and more interesting and more engaging. And um, yeah, it made my life fuller. So that was my graduate school experience.
0: That's a cool feature that you described, because suddenly when something comes into your world, before it came into your world, your world was this. Right after it comes into your world now that's an element that you see every time every day for the next however many decades mm-hmm. but it was not part of your previous decades what a cool element that is and it's very easy to compare for us because like, oh wait a minute 10 years ago this was not part of our framework mm-hmm. so growth must have happened right there indeed that's cool now at stanford how would you describe what you uh, have researched profess your material your category of interest
1: yeah, so in terms of research, what I what I've done, what I did for most of my um, time and at Stanford was looking at how people make sense of inequality. So, how do people psychologically represent inequality? By that, I just mean when you see, let's say, you go into an organization and you see there are differences that don't seem fair. How do you understand those differences? Do you think about them as this organization is something? There's something off with the organization. Do you see it as Let's say it's uh, gender disparity. Do you see it as the women are being treated poorly? Do you see it as men being treated unfairly, positively? Like, how do you understand the inequality that you see? Because this is true for a lot of things. When you see something like inequality, there's many ways to understand it or or different, different angles to see it from. And when I talk about the psychological representation, what I was interested in is how The angle you saw it from, how you understood it changed the way you responded to it, changed the way it felt to you. So it was how is your experience of inequality affected by the way you see it? Not the way it is, but the way you see it. And I I spent quite a bit of time doing that. And I did that in the context of of race. So I looked at how people think about racial um, disparities when they think in terms of um, racial advantage versus racial disadvantage and how that changes the way they respond to it, the way they feel about it. Um, I also looked into how people try to maintain the status quo. So if there are existing inequalities, like how do they, that benefit them, how do they work um, to maintain those and how does that, what's the psychology that supports that? So those are the kinds of things I studied. And more more recently, I've been looking at meaning in life. So (laughs) how does the idea of self-continuity affect meaning in life? So that's what I've been doing most recently.
0: As far as some of the questions you have wanted to tackle, how would you describe a couple of them that come to mind? Questions that you have phrased that have guided your research. Yeah, um,
1: I think the big question is, how do, how do our circumstances affect our outcomes? How do the circumstances outside of our control affect our outcomes? Um, and how do um, other people respond to that experience? By that, I, I simply mean <clears throat> when you see, again, I think a lot in terms of inequality, when you see inequality as something that affects people's life opportunities, um, how do you Make sense of whether or not that's about the person or about the situation the person is in. Whether that's about the system or about the people in the system. Um, and then also how do you experience yourself um, as a function of that? So if you are in the system, and you see the system is unequal, inequitable. Um, how does that make you feel about yourself? So those are some of the things that I've, I've really thought about. Um, yeah, how do we exist in these unequal social systems
0: Mm -hmm. now your perspective has been not just what is but your relation to it as the person the self in a way what is the biggest difference in that perspective when you look at it as you and the item are all part of a whole versus how that element is affecting you
1: yeah so the, the biggest difference is that when you think of it as the system you don't internalize it as much so what i mean by that is if for example you're in a system and the system is inequitable but you think of it is about you that you're being discriminated against or that you are advantaged there's something about you then you um you for example if you feel discriminated against you don't feel as connected to that domain same if you feel advantaged you don't feel as connected to that domain if you understand it as the system and not as about you, then you can still maintain a connection to that domain. So if let's say you're <clears throat> at work and you feel like that something at work is not right, but you don't think of it as like your advantage or your disadvantage, you just think of it as the way work is, you can still maintain a connection to that your work. But if you feel discriminated against, you will feel like I don't. You will, you'll start to disengage from work. You won't feel as tied to work. Or if you feel advantaged at your job, you won't feel as tied to your job. And the, uh, the one of the reasons that might be the case is because um, it's hard to know if what's happening is a, if what you produce, if your outcomes are about you or about the situation. And when you can't tell, when you don't know. You don't know if it's like, are you failing or succeeding because people are treating you unfairly? Or are you failing or succeeding because of your own efforts? When you can't tell, you start to disengage from that domain. You don't feel as connected to it. And when I tell you inequality is about you, like you're discriminated against or you're advantaged, then you can't tell whether your outcomes are about you or not. And you disengage. If I tell you the system is messed up, the system isn't fair. You don't necessarily think it's about you, you think it's about the system. So then you still have a sense that, like, okay, I'm still I can be connected to this domain because it's not about you. So that's I mean, that's roughly some of the stuff that I've done in that in the in the space of inequality
0: and connecting it to the self or not. That reminds me, it might be later in the book, but it reminds me of a part where you talk about how when someone is cold or disrespects you or somehow treats you poorly not only do they become less human but it impacts you such that you feel less human in the process it takes away from both of you in a way it's not a build-up it's a takedown mm-hmm. and so is the smartest move in those kinds of scenarios for a person to distance from individuals that are not um, valuing their human nature
1: yeah so in the, in the book, so this is a little different than some of the stuff I do, some of the research I've done in the past. is because it's broader in the book. In the book, it's really about like what makes you a self. And what you're describing there is, um, I, the claim I make is that what makes you human is your interactions with other human beings, like that people see you and experience you as a full human and that that's what in some sense makes you human. It makes you a self. And so if you're in a situation where people are um, not recognizing your humanity, then yeah, I think you probably want to exit that situation. Um, that that it's, it will affect you. I mean, and this is a big part of the book that the idea that um, you can be you independent of how other people are treating you or that what other people think doesn't matter. That's that I think is almost certainly nonsense. Like what other people think matters, how other people treat you matters, it affects you. And you it's, it's hard to be in situations where people are denying aspects of your humanity
0: and not be negatively affected by that. I have an example scenario I wanted to present. If someone was in a home environment where there was limitation brought about by a family member or family members, then um, what impacts does that have on the self of the individual that's being impacted and... What is a good mindset for them to have to weather that scenario while they're in it? Yeah. Um it's a tough scenario if you're in a if
1: you're in a situation where you're living with someone who's imposing limits that are um painful um for you. And I think if if you read the book, what you'll you'll probably leave with because I'm very, I'm not prescriptive in the book. So I, I I don't say this is what you should do. I, I don't really give advice. Like I, I, I try to give people a way to understand their situations and then allow them to make decisions that seem best given whatever their goals are. Um, but if someone came to me with that, I would say you should look for other relationships outside of the home to sustain you. Um, that it's going to be tough to protect yourself from that relationship if you're if you are constantly engaging with it right it's um it's really hard to shield yourself from the consequences of relationships that you are forced to engage in that's one of the things i talk about in the book and so your your best bet is to try to find other relationships to bolster the the sense of self or the self that you'd like to be
0: there's a great thing you mentioned in the book about how You can only do so much to impact the dynamic you're in. It's affecting you some percentage-wise, regardless of how much you boundary yourself in some Mm -hmm. way. It's right there. Mm -hmm. Same with local environments, same with cities. How much do local cities or where you are situated impact your day-to-day mental activity?
1: Oh, you know, the your local environment has a, an immense effect on you in terms of mental health. That I'm less I'm less clear on. I'd be surprised if it didn't affect your mental health. Um, but there, there's clear research that thing, things like your your outcomes are affected by, um, for example, how much mobility there is in a neighborhood, how walkable your neighborhood is, will affect things like your ability to succeed financially. I mean, there's just I think we underestimate the importance of what feels like incidental interactions, right? So you walk down your street, you go to get coffee, you go to pick up groceries. If you, if you live in a neighborhood where you can walk, the interactions you have, which are fleeting and feel unimportant, affect you, right? And you can see that when you think about it. Like, if you come home at the end of the day. It's been a busy day you've been doing a lot you go to store you run errands you like went to work whatever a bunch of stuff some days you come home and you just are worn out and there's some you come home and you're not upbeat you're not excited it feels like heavy you don't feel great and and some of those things you might it might be like oh something happened at work but sometimes it's just the psychological wear and tear of these little interactions that just can build up like somebody's you know, cuts you off on the road. Somebody's rude to you in the store. Somebody, you know, skips over you in line or something. And these things affect you, right? In ways that you probably are not um, considering in the moment, but, you know, they, in aggregate, they affect you. And that is your local environment is affecting you. You know, if, if your environment is one in which you have pleasant interactions day to day, where people see you in the way that you would like to be seen, or they affirm who you see yourself as that's going to be a much easier environment to exist in than one in which there's constant stress and strife even in these little interactions that seem like they shouldn't matter
0: all those little interactions add up throughout the day and if they're of a frantic nature then you absorb some of that frantic nature Mm -hmm. and if they are of a relaxed warm up building nature suddenly you're more likely to come up with ideas and share some warmth as well how can one or in which way does building a self occur how do you see yourself more clearly and extricate yourself from the external that exists so you're like okay these these elements are clearly me (laughs) um and this is the part of the book i think is challenging
1: I mean, it's, I think it's challenging for a reader and it's also honestly challenging for me. Um, I believe it's true given the research, but it's still challenging. And the, the challenging part is that I don't know what it means when you say the real you. I, I would say that there are infinite versions of the real you, that the real you is shifting constantly. There's not a, a core, this is who I am and then these other things are not really me. That, that That's not how the book, thinks of self the self is a a fluid construction of the relationships you engage in and so the real you is the you that you are in the relationships and interactions you have that's how i talk about it so i don't obviously i don't deny that there's like you know there's biology you have let's assume uh, you know you have a temperament and there's some stability there but i don't think that's what people mean when they say the real me they mean things like you know I'm, I'm at heart like a a mother or a father or I am whatever it is. I'm an athlete. There's I, these identities of how we, in an, uh, an aggregate, understand who we are. Um, you could talk about traits, but even how those traits show up varies, right? So if you're stubborn in one situation, that might be a positive. It's not in another situation. And so I don't think people really... I don't think people, this is going to sound, this is going to be a little, I don't know, maybe controversial. I don't think really people think I am a stubborn person. Like, that's who I am. That's like an aspect of the way I engage. But I don't think that's really what people mean when they say myself. This is who I am in the world. That's just a way that they, a a version of how they engage. When you say who you are in the world, I think what people mean are these social things. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm, I'm black. I'm white. I'm Asian. You know, I'm a dancer. I'm the, these are the things and those things require other people there's there's just no other way around it and so to say the real you as if it exists without other people I think is a mistake
0: this is a great point on our interconnected, interconnected social being such mm-hmm. that who we are is who we are along with our fellow people individuals across wherever Without that, we don't bring out our... It's almost like with exercise where you don't see the qualities of the body until you put it into certain scenarios. and Like, oh, this ability was built in and this came out and this... But you need that linkage between you and the mountain or you and the people mm-hmm. so that it can uh, showcase itself. Now, there were a few quotes I liked in the book or messages that were presented. One strong theme that came up was freedom, which I have always been viewing of inclined towards it's a very important concept because without it your your landscape is stuck your options are closed in and for me that's a substantial deal you have one message where he said there are fewer options after you encounter me than there were before for certain individuals uh that you come across um they leave you in a place that you're now limited How can one build their freedom? How do we have signs that our freedom has been reduced in some way, and we can uh, not let that occur?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things again that's challenging about the book is I think people believe they want more freedom than they actually do. So I'll say let me say say more about that. So I think when people talk about freedom, I think what they mean. Is the ability to do, say, and be what they would like without other people hindering them? I think that's what people mean, and that actually is frightening when you think about it really hard. Um, what you, uh, what I mean by that is, think about what you want. Like, what you want is to be responsive to your environment. What you want is to be the kind of person you would like to be. But the "would like to be" part comes from somewhere. It's not from nowhere. And where it comes from is probably some relationships. They're just the relationships in which you feel you the person you would like to be within that relationship. So um, if you have a great friend and you're around that friend, I don't think you probably don't feel um, constrained. You feel like this is great. You, you like You like being around that person. You look forward to being around that person, spending time with them. But the reality is that person limits your freedom like that person is but they limit your freedom in a way that feels good to you so this is the this is the distinction i i I want to make a bit in the book that it's not so much that i think people are opposed to limits on their freedom it's more the nature of those limits and what they're limited to so if you are limited in a way that feels right that feels good it It feels like somebody, it feels like a warm embrace or a hug, right? That's the, that's a, that's a limit. Um, If you feel like you're being constrained in a way that, that feels, I don't let's call it um, uncomfortable, then that, what was a hug can feel like a straitjacket, right? It feels like it's constraining you and you can't get out. But in both cases, your freedom is limited. It's just the nature of that limit. And so I don't know that people, what they really want is Freedom so much. Um, what I think they want is a sense of um ease in the in the constraints that you have. Like to be a self is to be constrained. Right? That's <laughs> there's true. no other way there's no other way around it. To be a self requires
0: constraint. There's limitation in that description of sorts. hmm You have that great chapter hugs, straight jackets. It's funny because it's related to the concept I've thought about for a long time where you have comfort, but then with comfort you have limitation they're tied together mm. because there's no such thing as just comfort, but you didn't build a scenario where that is maintained in some way. Is that always a shorter term or a shorter or medium term view for a person to go towards comfort because in the long term they're battling against entropy of life
1: um That's a good
0: question. Um,
1: You know, I don't think I haven't thought about it quite that way. I don't know that I would say they're battling against the entropy of life, but I don't know that I disagree with that either. So by that, I mean, um, I think people need to make sense of the world and themselves in it. And it's possible that the world doesn't make sense and that you don't make sense in it. And so we have to construct that. Like that, we construct order and meaning in the world. It doesn't just, it's not given to us, it's created. And so it could be that, yeah, it could be that what we're constantly doing is constructing, reconstructing order and meaning in our lives as a way to defend against the absurd chaos that is actual life in the universe. (laughs) you know that I can I certainly can see that and obviously people have made those kind of claims right like that that is a like existential philosophers and, and others have made those kind of claims before
0: true makes me think of Albert Camus and also somebody who liked Sisyphus and pushing mm-hmm. the ball up the hill and mm-hmm. it rolling back I want to talk with somebody about that for a bit interesting one we have these battles and decisions we have to make of how far we want to go in each each direction if we will on the topic of absurdism is it, this is kind of a unrelated but would you say the world does the world have some absurdity to it is there some comical nature to the existence that we are in
1: <laughs> I,
0: I I I tend to think of it as relative yeah absurd yeah I, I do
1: um, I think people have different views of this I hope it's man I hope it, there's at least some comedy in it otherwise it's really a tragedy <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it
0: that's a cool <laughs> way. Nice. That's true. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> connection is a key point for all of us. And I think it's one of the things I value the most whenever I think of life. Depth of connection is way up there in comparison to most things. Now, they had one message of uh, from the book where he said they were to give up a bit of feeling uh, for connection so sometimes you take a trade-off where you're giving up some of your what you value or feeling so that you build a connection with somebody under certain constraints mm. is that a is it like a like an energy minimum in one of those energy minimum graphs where you're falling into a, a little comfortable spot but to get out of it now you've you've made it difficult to get out of that comfortable connection at a later time.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I,
0: so I think what I, I think what I said there is like, you have to give up some freedom
1: to have a connection. So what, here's, here's how that works. And there's the empirical evidence of this. When you meet someone and you want to have a relationship with them of any kind, right. I don't I think people, when you say something like the same, they think romantic, but whatever. Like it's a, it's a new, a new colleague or uh, a potential friend. What does it matter? You have to have some sense of um, shared reality. Like you have to have some shared beliefs about the world to make a connection work. And so, what you see, and there's a lot of evidence of this. What you see is when people start to engage with other people, and someone wants to have a relationship, like with the other person, subtly things about them will start to shift to match their partner. And there's there's good reason to believe that this is not even conscious like they don't even know what's happening and so to to engage in a relationship requires that some degree of commonality be created and that seems for human beings it seems to happen um at a level below the threshold of consciousness like you do can do it consciously too but it doesn't you probably are doing it in ways you don't even recognize and in doing that what you're doing is giving up a little bit of your, of your freedom like you're trading some freedom for that connection whether you consciously think you're doing it or not, there's no way to have a connection with someone from my perspective, but not without giving up a little bit of freedom. Like you're allowing that person to define you a bit and you're defining them. And in doing that, you've given up freedom and a relationship requires that. Like that's what relationships are. Like if I say like, if right now I'm your guest on the show, I chose to be your guest, you're interviewing me like in this relationship as a guest, I can only be so many things, right? I'm not the host.
0: <laughs> right now, we're switching it. Okay, Brian is now the, host, the new host of the show. We're on the Brian show, actually, right now. Glad to be on here, Brian. Thank you for having me. But That's we funny. we construct each
1: other, even in this situation, right? Every situation is like that when you interact with someone, and when you do that, you give up a little bit of freedom.
0: That's a valid point. I'm renaming, re- renaming this one the Brian and Armin show. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The point you brought up right there, by the way, is golden. There are times when I am, you know, in process of connection building with someone, and then I'm showcasing a song that I might not have showcased a year ago, but they would also like it. But I didn't even think of why I... And then I showcased it or a picture or some uh, thought, and they're more linked with that individual... Six months ago, I wouldn't have done that same combination of mm-hmm. showcasing this these items, and suddenly now they're happening. And then I'm looking at myself: is this being strategic? What am I? Is this <laughs> is this is, is this strategy or some sort of? Just <laughs> well, let happening? me let me, well, he, You know, like
1: the funny thing about that, that, I don't know if I'm going to help you with that, but yeah, you probably are being strategic, but you might not know you're doing it right, and it's normal. That's how people behave. That's
0: the nature of creating connection. Right. It's a funny thing to see it happen and you're like right, mm-hmm. who who's causing this influence from one to another as far as the influence that we have when we have a collaboration or we're working with somebody or something solid we're doing with one another are do you notice the auxiliary uh influences that it has on people that see what's going on ah. in that pairing? Uh, others who are friends of those individuals yeah is there multiple layers of influence there i see yes that's that's uh um, an interesting
1: um situation and i do talk about that a little bit in the book so if i like we're having this interaction I, I you know people are watching it i hope i'm sure you hope too so people are watching it and um we assume it will influence them right they'll be affected by this interaction so the interactions interactions have ripple effects so it's not just we are influencing each other, but people are witnessing it and that is influencing them as well. So I, and the book, the example I give is I have a conversation with a colleague where we're talking about these issues, the book, and I, I make some extreme point like, you know, people are changing all the time. I'm changing you right now. This is what I say to my colleague. You're a different person now than you were before this conversation. And she, reasonably smart person, pushes back and is like, "It's not like you changed me completely. I, st- you know, I still have all these things that I was before." Um, and I say, "Yeah, that's true, but how much do I need to change to change you?" So there's that interaction we're having. I'm having with her, but we're doing it in front of graduate students. So those graduate students are now seeing us and making sense of their relationships through us. Like, so they're we're their advisors. So how do they understand? what it means to be a professor as a function of that for them, what it's a a passive interaction actually between them and say me as their advisor. Like I'm not talking to them, but they're interacting with me in that situation indirectly. So they're seeing like, this is how professors behave, right? So they're learning something about who they are and who they can be too, right? So there's in some ways a, a different kind of interaction happening with them, even though they're only witnessing my conversation with a colleague, and so there's it's it's there are multiple, you know, effects of that one interaction. You can think of it this way too. You know, you, people have this experience. You walk down the street, you see something that's like bothersome or something that makes you happy. That affects you, even if you're not directly involved in that interaction.
0: That's true. It can adjust your next two hours. Something that occurred, or you on the freeway, or with a person. Now you're thinking about that for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. Exactly. And it was just there. It wasn't part of your plan there. 100%. Also, yeah, the students that see you there, they might be thinking of multiple levels. They could be thinking of if they were a professor, how it would look like, or, mm-hmm. oh, okay, they're relating that to maybe some conversation in their own life that they've had. So there's a nice linkage yeah. that we do as people to figure out how does this relate to us. If we have a somewhat of a self that we have encapsulated ourselves within. How can we, over time, adjust that self, or as you mentioned, rewrite it? Is it do we do more in our own being, or is it with others that we are most likely to rewrite ourself? You know, my I take a
1: strong position on this, which is probably extreme, but I take a I take an extreme position often, so. <laughs>
0: we like extreme Um, positions they say something
1: yeah yeah so my my claim is that it's all within relationships you might see it you might not see it but the change in the self is uh, necessarily change in relationships so if you want to rewrite the self in some ways it's pretty easy you know your relationships shift and you change on the other hand it's hard because I don't know what it means to do it internally on your own
0: what would that look like? That may look like. Right. If you, let's say you're just journaling or sitting with your thoughts, you can only go so far because you're not once again connecting with the landscape and we're built for some sort of tribe mm-hmm. or grouping. And so this is like an island. Nothing really builds from an island. It's also, do you think about it in the sense of proactivity? Sort of like when, if someone's not feeling well, so they don't go do physical activity and then they continue to not feel well. But actually, if they went and did physical activity, the action would then not only they would be doing physical activity, but this would take care of the not feeling well, the proactivity causes it. So same thing with the social nature, being proactive in the social landscape comes back and takes care of the self that we envision ourselves to be.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's that's fair. Um, I think if we want to have this positive effect on who we are um, that, again, if you accept my idea of self, the only way to do that is to change the interactions you're having in the world, right? The, The self that you have in mind is not some decontextualized little person in your head that you can talk to and fix like that that clearly i mean in a way i think that's that's how i don't know how we've gotten to this place we've evolved toward this place um, socially where we have this idea even though we know it's not true that we can somehow talk to a little version of ourselves and and help fix that person in our head but that that seems a strange when you examine it and think about it it's a strange way to understand what's happening right? It's a strange way to understand it. Um, And I I want to push back against that and say, there's no little you up there, right? There's you as it exists in your environment. And you want to change what's what that feels like change your environment, change your social environment.
0: Very valid point there. And you want to have input and output going on versus if you're just reflecting on your own items. I saw this graph the other day or yesterday that showcased that the one of the most negative feelings people have is when their mind is wandering negatively. Mm. Um, is way down there. Then it described all the different feelings we have. Wandering positively was only slightly positive, but wandering negatively was a real impact on mm-hmm. the mind. Because I think it relates to what you're saying. You're You're reflecting on your own self. It's past material. You can't really alter it. So there's nowhere to go from that. And it's encapsulated. Versus if you bring in the external world, you have room to build off of and grow and and Mm -hmm. such Mm -hmm.
1: you know what's interesting and that talk about this a little bit in the book the way we think about the self we assume it's just the nature of our biology or reality but historically it hasn't always been that way there wasn't always it wasn't always the case that people focused on that individual i some version of a you in the head historically there were times when that that way we understand i didn't exist right there was only kind of a a a we socially or that the voice in your head was could be thought of as God or some other external fact right because there wasn't a sense of an I in my head talking to me right so I I just point that out like and this is I'm not an expert in this I've read um, people who are and it's just interesting to realize that the way we talk about the self the way we experience ourselves isn't somehow a feature of human nature it's a way we understand ourselves now, right that it's it's not always been that way that human beings have not always and I don't mean like human beings like before we had any culture or could write. I mean like human beings like like in antiquity didn't necessarily think of themselves the way we think of ourselves now. And so there's nothing inherently right or unchangeable or true about the way we see ourselves now. It's just the way we see ourselves now
0: this point you brought up I'm glad you brought it up Against a, I had a point I wanted to bring up too in relation to it in the current time frame that we are in there is a lot of this showcasing of like a person being an island and somehow handling everything as an island but it, it's said in words but it's never practically showcased because by the time you want to actually do something substantial that's not how things can work you need 15 people 12 people a grouping some sort of partnership so it's like a showcased entity of and it looks great from afar it might look like a nice wow this lone figure is doing so much but it's more statements than actual you can't really get anywhere just as a lone figure we never were built that way yeah
1: no i you know and this is one thing that and there's a lot of people talk about this now the way our economy is set up the way our society works certainly in the west is um i don't know maybe it's a useful fiction but it's a fiction, the idea that you are the source of your outcomes alone, right? Like you contribute, like what you do. I don't, I don't want to deny the importance of hard work and talent, of course, but that clearly is an insufficient explanation for anyone's outcomes, right? And so if we want to talk about things like deservingness, like what do you deserve? What are you owed? We talk about it as if your outcomes are purely a function of you, like you, de- you deserve them. You worked hard, you're smart, you're whatever it is, you're athletic, you're <clears throat> have musical ability, what, whatever it might be. When in fact, that only partially accounts for your outcomes and everyone knows it. But people behave as if people individually deserve what they have, as opposed to understanding the broader context in which they exist and how those things that are outside of them are also producing their outcomes
0: it's a great point it's good to know these things because if one starts taking let's say credit for things that are not just from their own daily activities now it'll make them nervous over time because they can't keep up with what was already handed over from their scenario and now they'll be getting more and more nervous over time trying to keep up with that which is not them it was like a a gift almost or a scenario that they were placed in
1: yeah and the thing is like the reality is we can't it's hard to even see the way that the outside environment has influenced our outcomes we can see some things but there's so many so many influences on our outcomes that are subtle or complex that we can't even see them right and so sometimes it we can behave as if they don't exist because we can't don't understand them and that's a mistake Just because you don't understand them and and can't see them clearly does not mean they're not there. And a little reflection on your life will will make that clear to you. You could have done done everything you did, been as talented as you are, and ended up for a variety of reasons in a whole different life than the one you're in right now.
0: That's a valid point. Now, two of several items I wanted to include here is... One, you also have a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Know what you see? Yeah. What what might one find on such program? Yeah, so the podcast is really designed to do what, I
1: mean, some version of what grad school did for me. So what I hope in the podcast is that you will leave with a deeper appreciation for something that you were interested in before, right? The world will open up a little bit to you. And so right now um, we are finishing out the second season and they've been themed. So the, the, we had a season on um, race and power. We have a season on the changing nature of work. Um, and so they, they've been pr- pretty tightly themed, but going forward, I think I'm going to loosen it up a little bit. I, I, I just, I mean, I'm so interested in so many things in the world. Like the world is an incredible place and um, and in having these this podcast and being able to talk to really interesting people, it's a chance for me to have my world get bigger, right? To learn something and to see the world in a way I didn't see it before, um, and to be changed. And the hope is that the podcast does that for other people. That they come and they hear this, they hear someone say something, or they they hear the conversation I'm having with the person, and it changes something for the listener. That they leave expanded in some way so that really is the goal of the podcast and it's called know what you see because we we see the world all the time and often we just don't really understand what we're saying and that closes the world off to us more than it, it should be and if we can understand or know what we see more clearly then the world will become bigger for us so that's that's really the goal
0: I like the concept behind it very much because that right there is very clear for any person. Sometimes today, you can look back at five years ago and things that were right around you, you thought were not, nothing that special. And now five years later, you're like, that was like the gold. The gold was right there, 10 feet away, 100 feet away, one street away, one block away. Mm. But at that time, you if, if you could go back to yourself at that time, you'd say, wait a minute. You had x y and z right there what oh this is valuable oh in five years i'm really gonna you it would make such a difference yeah but at that time these are just boring whatever x y and z Mm -hmm. they mean nothing to me so it's really beneficial to the sooner you know what you see your life just it's like a jump up real quick type of deal indeed right and and sometimes we just don't have the
1: opportunity to help us see something like we just don't know right and um and this this is true for me true for everyone and this is the the podcast for me is exciting because i get the chance to know more and see more and i hope that everyone that comes along for the ride gets to know more and see more
0: (laughs) those are both golden my last question for you is a two-part who are or are there any individuals along the way that provided a strong fork in your road or that currently you model your efforts off of and after that what is the message you have from the book that you would want people to take away uh-huh. i think the
1: maybe the individual had the biggest effect on me as it relates to the things that we're talking about right now is probably my um advisor in graduate school so curtis Harden. um yeah, he it was just uh an engagements with him were just incredibly enriching like just we we talked about a bunch of different things some of it psychology some of it completely unrelated to psychology and what I was doing and um he challenged me in ways that just opened up a whole new vista, right? And so that that was a huge shift for me. So when I said like my graduate school experience like changed the way I, I felt like it, I felt like I became a different person. Like I could see things that were always there that I just didn't see before, right? It's like somebody showing you a different layer of reality that was always there. You just didn't know it was there. It's almost like a sci-fi experience. Like you walk around and you see things that you just didn't know were there. Like, <laughs> it's like augmented reality except it's actually just reality you didn't see before um and I, 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 a lot of that i attribute to my interactions with him like so that was a big part of um, my experience um in terms of the book what would i want people to walk away with um i want people to walk away with a deeper understanding of the importance of other people in their lives and a a, a deeper respect for their responsibility for others when they interact with them because the act of interacting with a person is the act of creation like we are in this moment Arman you and I are responsible for each other right in this moment we have um, the opportunity to shape each other and I think people don't take that seriously enough they don't take that as the deep responsibility it is what it means to be human in communion with other human beings is um, profound in a way that I I think people underestimate. And what would the world look like if we took those responsibilities and those opportunities seriously? And that's what I I hope people walk away with, the, the profound importance of human interaction. And what, what that means in a, in a really serious way, the act of creation, that's a it's a hell of a thing.
0: I like that you stress the key importance of it, those interactions, they shape a person's day, a week, a month, they can either build them up to be something more, see more, or they can constrict their world. And it is a very direct type of thing at that moment. Dr. Brian i would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show showcasing a bit from your wonderful book selfless the social creation of you and sharing a bit about um freedom connection ourselves, rewriting ourself and a bit more than that
1: yeah thank you armand i really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and for you to shake me a little bit this morning thank you so much Very glad to, same here, and we are out.